is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silverstein, and with me as always is Megan Bojarski. Hi. And we're your hosts through this chronological tour of every Disney movie ever. And as I have reminded people in real life recently when this podcast when I brought this podcast up, yes, that includes all of the live action movies. Yes, even the ones that you've never heard of. <laughs> and I think The Sword and the Rose is, you know, we we've talked about a couple of movies that I hadn't seen before. I think The Sword and the Rose is the first movie on this list I had never heard of before until I put the list together for this schedule. And so we will tell you what The Sword and the Rose is actually about. As we have been for the last few episodes, we will remain in merry old England, jumping forward in time from Robin Hood, I guess backward in time from Peter Pan, uh, so we're in, we're in the Tudor era with The Sword and the Rose, which was released July 23rd, 1953. It is based on the 1898 novel When Knighthood Was in Flower by Charles Major, uh, which had been previously made into a movie in 1908 and 1922 under the original title. This version was adapted for the screen by Lawrence Edward Watkin. It had also been previously adapted as a Broadway play and like was fairly well popular. I'm just going to take a wild guess because I don't know that we have any notes about this, but I'm going to guess they changed the title because they were like, boys aren't going to go see a movie with flower in the title. I think that the original name is a bit clunky. Sword in the mm-hmm. Rose flows a little bit better. I don't know. It's interesting because you can see kind of the change in name back and forth a couple of different times in the adaptations of the novel. They definitely lean on the Disney version a little bit. But since, as we'll talk about, this wasn't the most successful Disney movie of the era by far, it didn't have nearly as much of an impact as some of the other ones where we see, like, the fundamental change from Peter Pan and Wendy to Peter Pan and uh, mm-hmm. other kind of title changes like that. You know, and, and shortening of Alice in Wonderland to, like, encompass, you know, both of those books and... Mm-hmm simplifying things and you know in our simple-minded american way we have to you know abandon flowery titles and women um (laughs) (laughs) and just women right from at least from the titles of things but i do want to go ahead and give a quick plot summary for this one since it's not on disney plus it is available for digital rental megan was also able to watch it by finding it on youtube at no charge, so some YouTube patron saint has put that out there. So I'm <laughs> sure you can dig it up as well. 
I also actually do have a copy of this on DVD from the Disney Movie Club because this Ooh, was the, the rare copies. <laughs> yeah, this this was like one of the first ones chronologically that was only on DVD, and I wasn't even sure if it was available for rental while I was kind of digging through. And so I was like, oh, let me pick it up and and add it to my collection because I like physical media. But anyway, yes, plot summary. Uh, so we're talking about Mary Tudor here. She is the sister of King Henry VIII. She falls in love with a new arrival to the court named Charles Brandon. She persuades the king to make him captain of the guard. Meanwhile, Henry, ever the schemer, uh, is has decided to marry Mary off to King Louis XII of France as part of a peace agreement between the two countries. Meanwhile... <laughs> Mary's longtime suitor, the Duke of Buckingham, who, you know, we boo and hiss whenever we hear his name. If this were a Renaissance <laughs> fair, they, that would be the crowd instruction. Takes a dislike to Charles because he's a commoner. The Duke wants Mary for himself. Charles, feeling, I guess, overwhelmed and, like, feeling bad that he has feelings for Mary, resigns and decides to sail to America. Mary dresses up like a boy and follows him to Bristol. Henry's men find them and throw Brandon in the Tower of London. Henry agrees to spare Charles's life if Mary will marry King Louis and does tell her that when Louis dies, she's free to remarry uh, whoever she wants. Meanwhile, she asks the Duke of Buckingham for help, but he only pretends to help Charles escape from the tower, really planning to have him killed. And so the Duke of Buckingham and everyone else thinks that Charles is drowned uh, in the Thames, but he survives. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Mary does go and marry the King of France, encourages him to keep drinking, uh, which we will come back to that later. And his already deteriorating health keeps getting worse and worse. He is much older than her, by the way, that is relevant. His heir makes it clear that he will not return Mary to England after the King's death, but keep her for himself. Uh, when she goes to the Duke for help, he tells Lady Margaret that Charles is dead and decides to go rescue Mary himself. Meanwhile, it's discovered that Charles is alive, and when he learns that the Duke of the Duke's treachery, they also go to France. Louis dies, the Duke arrives in France, and then Charles shows up, rescues her, duels the Duke with swords, he wounds the Duke, Mary and Charles are married, she reminds King Henry of his promise to let her pick her own second husband. He forgives them, makes Charles a, almost in a replay of the end of Robin Hood and his Merry Men, makes Charles a duke, allows her, him to marry Mary. Henry also gets a bunch of gold because of his arrangement with King Louis, and he keeps that for himself. And so everybody other than King Louis, who's dead, and the Duke of Buckingham has a happy ending in the story it's it's everyone it's kind of a, a win-win i am not so familiar with the history i'm familiar enough with the history to know it's inaccurate but not detailed enough to know what the inaccuracies are so before we go too much further ryan and i both are involved with medieval studies or have been in our past i did focus on english regency especially war of the roses and tudor era so I was more familiar with the history. The kind of two big things that are changed is Charles Brandon isn't just like this new guy who shows up out of nowhere. He was Henry's best friend through like their entire lives. He grew up at court. So there was much more of a like 
have a crush on my brother's friend than a just like star-crossed lovers peasantry thing going on. Um, and the other thing is the whole escaping to America thing is completely fabricated out of nothing. The idea that Henry married Mary oft in France and that she got this kind of promise to be able to marry whoever she wanted, all of that's true. Also, the Duke of Buckingham, it's complicated. We don't keep all of the details of everything. More or less, that seems pretty inaccurate, too. So it's definitely more of kind of a merger of things. So this is one of the things that I wanted to kind of point out, and it could be completely out of nowhere. I haven't read the book that this is based on, but I do know a lot of the history around it, and my guess is that they took the historical idea of, you know, Princess Mary, who, you know, becomes Queen of France, running off with a guy who was born without a title, they took that and they wanted to blend it with these kind of classic romances. And so what I get from this story is that it's a bunch of Tudor names, but it's actually just a retelling of Tristan and Isolde, which is mm. vaguely an Arthurian uh, story. Mm -hmm. uh, so Ryan, are you familiar with that story? I am very familiar with that story, actually. It's, it's one of my favorites. My it's my medieval studies focuses more on the earlier side of medieval mm -hmm. history, so I and not and not England really at all. So this is like I said, out out roughly outside of my area of, of uh, expertise. But I do know Tristan and Isolde very well. Me having said that, do you see any connections? Just having you know watched this movie, knowing the story. Yeah, no, I I definitely see how this is following a lot of the same story beats and a lot of the same sort of emotional pull of like what what the story is actually about you know like like you said like mm -hmm. it's it's dressed up in tudor costumes and with names and things but at its core it is telling this this story of a, a woman who was forced to marry one man but is in love with another man and also has a third man in love with her and is not reciprocating him either and so i i think the that, that sort of running away aspect of it is is a big part too so for those who don't know you know tristan and isolde because it's not it's not a hugely popular one outside of kind of medieval or folklorist themes you know tristan and isolde there's a lot of different versions but they are they're in love with each other whether that's natural or not is is debated but she's married off to his uncle so he's like i love you but i can't because this is wrong so we get this kind of forbidden, they can't be together, she has to do her duty. But specifically for me, one of the things that's interesting is in Tristan and Isolde, and of course, like I said, there's different versions, he ends up going off and doing his own thing. He gets married and basically says, I'm never going to sleep with my wife because I'm in love with another woman. And so his wife is so annoyed about that when he gets poisoned, he basically says, send for Isolde, she will heal me. And, you know, if if she's coming, I'll I'll stay alive for her. And his wife finds out that she's coming and says, nope, she's not coming. Sorry about that. And so he dies. I got so many of the elements of that specifically with instead of 
Tristan being Charles Brandon, Tristan being Mary in France. And so the idea that she's trying to kind of evade responsibilities of her marriage, uh, because they do put a lot of effort into the king wants to produce heirs and she Mm -hmm. gets him drunk or gets him tired or whatever to avoid that. And then kind of this idea that, you know, chastity and protecting herself for her lover is being thwarted by these duplicitous lovers who are trying to claim her. I, I just saw a lot of the themes kind of copying onto different sides of it. And again, I, I do think there is that connection on that sort of folkloric mythic level, especially of, again, pulling out some of the, the themes and, and dynamics and, and meaning behind it. I will say, and because I, I do have to bring this up, but if there are children listening, earmuffs, according to historical folklore, the actual reason that King Louis died was because Mary Tudor was very, very vigorous sexually. <laughs> and so, like, it's not, it's funny to me that this is a Disney movie, and, like, obviously they, they changed it to him drinking too much and her kind of avoiding sex with that. But it, I found that just a very funny, like, you've gone so far away from, like, quote-unquote, the reality, because, again, nobody really knows, but that is sort of mm. all the historical hearsay, if you will. But, like, you've pivoted so far from the, like, text of it that now you've actually made it subtext in a weird way. <laughs> yeah, it's such a weird thing to me, because I get get that Disney has to basically go, like, well, you know, you can't even say that. I was going to say, I get that Disney has to take it away from the sexual angle. I mean, she's she's sexually assaulted and people are making lewd comments at her through the entire movie. I, I don't know that I can even say that it was Disneyified. Yeah, whether the the two sides of that that rumor are either that she was extremely kind of vigorous or just that he was so desperate for an heir that basically, like, he put all of his waking hours into the task of heir making. Either way, like, I'm having sex is basically the only thing we do know about their relationship. <laughs> like, she didn't want it, she did get married, and they had sex a whole lot until he died. That's all we know about it, and yet the movie kind of explicitly makes it so that it it was, in all likelihood, kind of a celibate marriage, uh, which certainly is as far from historically accurate as possible. Right. And, and you know, that is also a connection back to Tristan as well. But, but like I said, it's almost like they're like they're like lampshading it so hard that I'm like, this movie is making me think about them having sex, even though they're canonically not having sex in this movie. <laughs> like... Just a very strange pivot because that is one of the, that is one of the only points about any tutor not named Henry VIII that I actually remember off the top of my head. Because <laughs> you can see what kind of history professors I had in college. <laughs> Sex is something that's talked about a lot when we're studying history. If only because in this time period, it was written about a lot. You know, you you had gossip and you had people talking about whether or not there would be an heir between the two. Sex was kind of the the big thing other than battles that got recorded, which is why I feel like Game of Thrones would have worked much better as it does in Fire and Blood as a historical record instead of a novel, 
because mm-hmm. it would make complete sense to me if 90% of what's talked about is sex and battle in a historical record, because that's just true. If you read some of the historical texts, all it is is we had a battle, we had a child, we had a battle, we tried to have a child, we tried to have another child. You'll see entire records that are just those things. I don't think it's the best uh, structure for a narrative. Yeah, no, I, that totally makes sense. Reading Fire and Blood is a very fun experience for those who are familiar with text written almost a thousand years ago. Uh, especially because they had the perspective of, we're, we're going on tangents because this is what we do. I liked having the perspectives of the three different historians and how they were biased and how like this one always will say the most scandalous thing that can possibly be said because that's so true. And it just makes me think of, you know, the secret history. If we're looking at uh, Rome and Byzantium and there's just Anyway, I don't get to talk about my history side very much. This is going to be a very nerdy episode. So this is an especially nerdy episode, even even by our standards. <laughs> I think that now is a great time for us to pause for a second and say, hey, everybody, if you're on our social media, you might be aware that we are putting code words in our podcasts. I think it's very obvious that either nerdy or history should be our code word for this episode. Ryan, would you like to pick one? Uh, let's pick nerdy for this one. So whether you're on social media or not, what we're doing here is we have a giveaway of some Funko Pops. We've got copies of Cinderella. We've got a few different, uh, shirts. Anyway, all of these are going to kind of get thrown into a raffle. And if you have been listening and have heard our code word, message us on Twitter, message us by email, and you just might win some Disney swag. So code word is nerdy. Yeah. And, and so continuing down that line, you know, we're still in this time period that I, I mean, I guess it's still the case today that Disney and, and other movie projects are, you know, really playing up how historically accurate they're going to be and how much research they've done. Uh, but apparently, you know, they spent months doing research for this movie, uh, similar to how we talked about in the Robin Hood episode. They at least wanted the movie to look more realistic and and again i think they're mostly talking about the movies of the 30s and 40s that are by our standards and even i guess by their standards the sets look quote-unquote fake you know or like flimsy and and it's it's this desire to always make things more and more and and more realistic and so that that's certainly here the uh, dr charles beard was a technical advisor he was an expert in chivalric manners and English history. I'm sure he told them the actual history. And then in the interest of trying to make a better movie, they went with the changes that they were going to make. But, you know, I think they, at the very least, Dr. Charles Beard certainly told them the real deal history. I think that aesthetically, they probably were focused on doing things historically accurate. So one of the things that I was telling Ryan is that this movie is built for me. I am legitimately the perfect target audience because I love like the Tudor era, love historical dramas, and I love historical dance. And if you've watched this movie, the first 30 minutes is basically just standing around talking and then dancing. And a lot of the dances are actually pretty good. They are pretty accurate. Out of the clothing pretty good just 
story isn't, uh, which I think in large part probably goes back to the original novel, uh, which again, I haven't read. But I know that many of the details that were correct structurally go back to that. I feel like I'm coming at this in from a from a, just an interesting place in what I've been sort of like watching and, and reading and things recently because I actually really enjoyed this movie. I, I'm not going to say that it's like, again, like I, I don't think it's quite at hidden gem status, but I will say that I just, I had a very good time watching this movie. I think in part because I have been dipping a little bit further into into romance as as a genre and thinking about romance as a story type and so i think i think that's part of why this worked for me is because like some of that stuff is still new enough to me to the point where like if i recognize the like a trope that is like very common in romance shows and or you know, movies and, and books and things I'm still getting that, like, oh, I recognize the thing. Like, I'm, you know, mm-hmm. sort of learning the language of romance as a genre because it's not something, you know, being an American male race, it's like the anathema to everything I'm supposed to like. And so, you know, I, I'm coming to it late because it's just not something I was purposely exposed to, or, you know, even the things that have those tropes in them, I wasn't thinking about them because that wasn't how I was processing those stories. And so, you know, for me, given just my general affinity for medieval history, knowing that this is a Disney movie and, you know, there are very few, it depends on what, what kinds of things scream realism to you in, in, in medieval uh, stuff, especially because, you know, obviously, like, sometimes you watch things and you're like, I just know everybody had terrible teeth and they smelled really bad. <laughs> yeah. But, like, all these people are still very attractive and very, like, you know, like, kissable, which is not something I would say about people with, you know, who have, unfortunately, like, untreated teeth for their entire existence. I hope that we have a listener who, like, knows enough about medieval dentistry to tell me how wrong I am. Nothing would make me happier. But, you know, I, I so I think just thinking about it through that lens and just the way that this movie struck me, I had a really fun time watching it. Like I said, it's not anywhere near the best of of the movies we've watched this season i don't think it's as good of a movie as robin hood like given the choice between the two i'd probably watch robin hood again but going in knowing this was going to be like about the sister of king henry the eighth and being like okay like well you know we'll see that like i like i said i had a good time it it didn't shock me you know or like completely bowl me over but i i really enjoyed watching this one i wanted to like this one Like I've said before, I always do the research first, and the research more or less says that people think this is a really boring movie. And when I found it on YouTube, there were a bunch of comments of people saying how much they loved it. So I was was optimistic going in. Unfortunately, I think for me, it was kind of... There were kind of two main things that bugged me. The first one was that I don't think that Story-wise or actor-wise, there was the same degree of chemistry we saw in Robin Hood between our romantic leads. Like, mm-hmm. I don't see any reason why Mary and Charles want to be together. They just, like, they bickered once, and then they were just, like, completely in love, willing to die for each other. And I I dislike when that happens i feel like there needs to be more build-up and there wasn't very much in this 
the other thing that I think bugged me a lot is the story wants you to believe Mary is very smart. Like this idea of kind of the clever woman who's manipulating things to mm-hmm. her to his her purposes. I think Henry says twice, if she was just born a man, she'd be an excellent general. But I kind of got late season Game of Thrones vibes off of it. The only reason one character seems smart is because the other characters are idiots instead of a character actually being smart. Because Mary and Brandon both basically just were like, what if we just take France's money and don't do what they want? And Henry's just like, yeah, that's cool. And Mary's like, oh, and what if you like gave him a title and gave us a bunch of money and estates? And he's like, sure, yeah, let's do it. And I didn't feel like she was like artful in getting that out of him. It just seemed like Henry was an idiot. <laughs> You can't just, you know, break a a betrothal vow, take all of the money, and just be like, I'm sure France won't do anything in retaliation. Britain and France would go to war for literally no reason. This has been their history for, you know, hundreds of years. So the idea of them just being like, ah, this all works out rather swimmingly just makes no sense. I didn't think about that angle. Like, I didn't think about it in that way of... Mary looking smart because the other characters are idiots. Even though I definitely, uh, you know, while watching it, I was like, God, these guys are all idiots. You know, and again, maybe it just works on me. There is also the nostalgia factor for Glynis Johns because I watched Mary Poppins so often as a kid. uh, And she Mm -hmm. plays the, uh, she plays Mrs. Banks. And so like, even just hearing her voice and that sort of like, that chipperness about her. Like I was like all in on Mary at at the beginning. And like, you know, again, like seeing her young and, you know, again, even though this movie sort of explicitly dodges some sexual things, there's a lot there. There is actually a lot of like sexual language and things, Mm -hmm. you know, like people get called hussies a bunch of times. Like (laughs) there is a lot of like sexually suggestive language, I would say like, like G rated suggestive, but like, you know, again, like, under the Disney brand more than I, I would have expected. Yeah, I I definitely see that. Specifically the scene where Mary just like tricks Henry into basically making a bunch of men storm into her bedroom while she's naked, although she isn't, is is kind of great. That might be my favorite scene in this movie, honestly. There's no reason for it. Oh, not at all. I love it. She's just being petulant. It's not like she has a valid reason to be messing with him. Um, I think I mean, it's her it's her brother. That that's reason enough. That's fair. And historically speaking, they were the closest siblings. He absolutely adored her. They spent a lot of time together. So, the bickering works. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I just and this is going to be the wildest way for me to phrase this. So as I was watching the movie, two things kept coming to mind. First is, this movie wants to be Shakespeare, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the cross-dressing, which of course we saw in Robin Hood as well, is very Shakespeare. The kind of, you know, tricks of language, the mocking the king into not being able to to sleep with Mary, 
all of that is very Shakespearean. I don't feel like the dialogue is good enough for the strategies it's using. And then the other thing that I'll bring up, and this is going to sound ridiculous, I really love reading fan fiction. Um, and so I'm currently reading excellent fan fiction based on Game of Thrones. And I, I will share it with all of you. Uh, essentially, the concept is based on the TV show when Arya Stark was Tywin Lannister's cup bearer, you know, which is this great moment because we see the two characters facing off. Essentially, the idea of the story is what if he had known who she was and how would that have changed the entire show? And it's it's been a very intriguing thing. It has many, many similar plot beats to this movie, oddly enough. And I just was reading this on a whim. They have really smart dialogue. And so when people get trapped into things, I really feel like, you know, they they can't see a way out and they're fighting and, and really intelligent. And in this one, it seemed like they were just like, ah, you've outwitted me. I'm like, but how? They they literally didn't do anything. They just told you what they wanted. I mean, there is also the scene in this movie where Henry's like, I need to have a private conference with my advisors. And they walk like six feet away in the same room into a more echoey alcove. <laughs> so like, yeah, like, I agree with you that they're going for Shakespearean. I also agree with, I think, the implication that it feels very stagey in a way, like, mm-hmm. like theatrical stage more than like Robin Hood felt more cinematic overall. And this feels more like a stage production for some reason. Mm-hmm. And, and again, this, what this story has been a stage production in the past. So it is possible to do this story on the stage, but it feels a little more flat. I mean, it's a lot more in indoor than Robin Hood was like Robin Hood, just like, you know, being outside and actually shooting on location and, Robin and Little John are are fighting on a log in actual water that's rippling by. Like there's that makes it feel more lavish and, and, you know, like I said, more cinematic for some reason. And this feels more, you know, like a theatrical play, but your point about fan fiction now I'm like, should we just recast historical inaccuracy as historical fan fiction? Oh, absolutely. I've been saying this for a while. My big argument when people are like, oh, fan fiction is, you know, cringy and awful is like half of high literature is just historical or biblical fan fiction. And I I can definitely see that. Just as a quick point for anybody who happens to be uh, listening and is curious about this uh, fan fiction I'm reading, it's called A Wolf Amongst Lions by Calypso spelled with a K-A-L-L-Y-P-S-O, not the traditional like C-A-L. It's a good title. It's a good title. It's a good good story. But I definitely think that, you know, if we go back to that Shakespearean idea, we see the idea of taking these historical figures and making them play the parts we want them to, to send the messages we want. It's all very real person fan fiction-y. And I suppose my my problem with that is that it seems a little bit underwhelming uh, that if you're going to do, if you're going to use history, okay, I'll, I'll do it this way. I have written fan fiction. Generally speaking, people who are committed to their fan fiction know their source material. And they're going to, 
they're not going to make silly little mistakes or if they do like it's it's not super important because they know their material this feels like fan fiction they didn't actually read the history they read the wikipedia page for the history (laughs) which is fine i mean that's i read the wikipedia page too it's a very useful resource but you also if you're gonna claim that you've done months of research i feel like it should actually feel you've put months of research into it i don't know i'm being so mean i am slamming this movie more than i normally slam them by quality but i just I don't know. I feel like if if a random Game of Thrones fan fiction that I happen to be reading is distinctly better at almost identical plot points, it's probably not a great sign. I can see aspects of the making of this movie and how this movie came together that might actually explain some of that. So, you know, director Ken Anakin returns from Robin Hood. And I believe he also did Treasure Island. Producer Douglas Pierce, writer uh, Lawrence Edward Watkin, and artistic director Carmen Dillon. According to press materials that the American Film Institute is quoting, the film was three years in production, beginning with a full year of script writing by Purse Pierce and Lawrence Edward Watkin. And so, you know, again, they're spending a year on the script. And part of that process is also the storyboards. So Ken Anakin was working with Walt in Burbank on the storyboards for this movie. Here's what Ken Anakin has to say about that process. As the script developed, it was always fed to Walt, who made his comments, and one began to see how important and helpful the thumbnail sketches were. After one had gotten a few pages done, Walt would come and look at them from his experience in cartoons, would quickly put his finger on where the action looked as if it might be slacking, and where perhaps it was too long. By addition and elimination, we were all, but Walt especially, able to make sure we had had very good action sequences at the right times in this picture. For me as a director, the fact that we did our creative work in Walt's office and on the drawing board, so far as the action scenes were concerned, meant that I was completely free to develop the dialogue scenes and scenes between people in my own way. Walt obviously wanted to know if the dialogue was as sparse as possible, but he was very happy that one made made one's own interpretation with the actors. There was no question of it being tied down by a diagram with the actors, which of course would have been a very serious handicap to the system. But I was getting to know Walt better, and he was getting to know me better, and he was starting a relationship with Ga- which gave me every advantage and complete freedom. So I think it, part of this is like the way that Disney is making their live-action movies is similar in a lot of ways to the way that they're doing their animated stuff. And so like they're planning out everything in advance, and Walt is very involved in the process. And so I just I'm I'm just thinking about like the storyboard and Walt is there making his suggestions and, and based on everything that we've like heard from Walt so far and all of these process things, I can like imagine his brain being like, it needs to sound like Shakespeare, but not as complicated as Shakespeare. I feel like, I, I feel like we've talked about this on some other episode, but I feel like one of the best things about Disney movies that we've seen, especially I think in this era is they capture the feeling of a thing Maybe even more than doing the thing itself. That's something we've been seeing a lot of. And that's, you know, that's something we talked about with Alice in Wonderland and with Peter Pan, where as long as it feels right, that's kind of the most Mm -hmm. important thing. So I can definitely see this kind of buildup going on and the idea of Walt kind of engineering it as he would engineer animation. can definitely see parts of that put into all of this. I'll say that one of the funniest sequences to me 
And I feel so bad about this because they are unnecessarily rude to the King of France. But the idea that like Mary just like jumps up onto the horse and then they have him get ready. And not only is he on a platform, but he just like squats and puts his arms out and is carried onto the horse. (laughs) That is a thousand percent a Walt like animation ism, which was, in my opinion, one of the best parts of the movie. Um, Because there were such great little bits thrown in here and there. I think the problem is, to me, it doesn't feel like Shakespeare, but more understandable it just feels like something that's a little bit muddled like instead of choosing to kind of go all in on the shakespeareiness or go all in on the modern they kind of went in between and in my personal opinion i don't think that it worked completely understand if other people disagree it just it felt like it was a little bit too much in the gray area so it didn't really hit the right tone either way. I can definitely see that. And and I feel like there is something, you know, especially when it's, especially like when you, you know, take in a work of fiction and it is connected to a thing that you are passionate about. There is that weird thing where like, it's like close enough to being like, re- like the real, the kind of thing you really want it to be. Mm-hmm. But then all of the like flaws in it, like are that much more glaring because you're like, well, like if they just change this and then this and this and this, and you end up with a really long list of things. But if it was like more over the top, it would be easier to be like, oh yes, this is like a silly version of this. And therefore I can, I can enjoy it that way. Yeah. I, I guess I, if they had just had better written dialogue, I think this would have been a slam dunk. The dialogue doesn't always work quite right for me. And so as much as it has kind of the Shakespearean feeling and certainly a Shakespearean plot, I mean, it it almost has the exact same structure as several Shakespeare plays. It just it doesn't have the language and the language is what has made Shakespeare last so long. So either either do a parody or do a straight run. But if you don't do Shakespeare properly, that just looks like you don't know how to do Shakespeare properly. You know, now that I'm I'm thinking back to watching it, it may also be that like this movie just struck me as really funny. And so a lot of the stuff where it's like, ah, oh, you've outsmarted me. Like I, I probably took to be, you know, just funny on, you know, like whether intentional or not, like I just took it as a comedic kind of like, Again, like I, I don't know. Like I said, I, fa- I I feel like I had a good time with this movie in part because there was a lot of humor in it, and maybe maybe it was just more than I was expecting. But a lot of this actually did strike me as funny. I'm not trying to tell you not to like this movie. I I guess I'm trying to share my side of it, not be like you must hate this movie because I was bored. But I I think that, like you said, the production has a lot to do with it. Uh, So Anakin actually wrote a book called So You Want to Be a Director. And one of the things that he had shared from it was it learned on Robin Hood that if you agreed to work for Walt, you must sublimate some of your own opinions and judgments and faithfully try to interpret the master's vision. He paid well, provided wonderful sets, actors and costumes, and clearly knew what his public wanted. Every time he came onto the set and concentrated on what I was doing, he would pick out something which might be elaborated or improved on, always something no one else had thought of. 
this was part of his showbiz genius. And I think that kind of comes back to, you know, the, the tug of war, I think, between kind of how you took this film and how I did. I guess to me, I didn't think of this as a Disney film. I thought of this as a not great history film. Uh, whereas if you try to take it from the perspective of a Disney movie, you're looking for those beats and you really do enjoy her showing him up with the like, I said I was indisposed and you're going to barge into the bedroom and the various little jokes they throw in at the king's expense. I think it kind of comes down to that perhaps battle of wills on the project that mm -hmm. Anakin might have done a better historical movie. Walt might have done a better adaptation of it. I think kind of between the two of them, they both hit some really good marks and missed some, to me, fairly significant marks. And I think that's, again, where I get the sense that this was, to some extent, maybe like what we talked about with Peter Pan and with Alice in Wonderland, ironically, because there were only kind of two major forces, another too many cooks situation. Where you didn't have one genius in the room. You had two. And you couldn't really execute either of them, which of course was something we've talked about before, that who was it that Walt had hired them to write up a script, I think for Alice in Wonderland, and then he left after like five days. Was that Aldous Huxley? Yep. And, and you know, he storms out, and there's a couple stories like this of people being hired and within, you know, a week or, or a month just basically being like, Walt's a control freak, and I'm a genius, and I'm not going to let him, you know, there, there's a quote from one of them that's just, you know, there's not enough room for two geniuses in the room. And I think that this film is a representation of them trying to have two geniuses in the room. I'm not trying to necessarily convince you into liking this movie more. And I'm glad that we have, you know, two different perspectives on it. Um, but no, I, and I, I think there is definitely a push pull and I think you're right. I think thinking about it as a Disney movie does change your expectations for it and push it in a certain way. And, and that may have hit me slightly differently. I think one thing we can probably both agree on is, you know, I talked about how it's mostly indoors, so it doesn't feel, it doesn't have the same feel as Robin Hood, but the like painted sets and, backdrops and mats are incredible mm. uh in this movie and like it looks really good still like it really holds up with how it looks and i hope eventually this does get like a nice like high definition re released at uh, just at least we can see more of these backgrounds they were all done by peter ellenshaw uh there were 62 in total and uh, the success of this movie and the ones that he worked on before uh, earned Alan Shaw what would be a lifetime contract with the studio. Essentially, if he wanted to work with them, they wanted to work with him. And so he would come back again and again to do more and more of these backdrops. And I'm sure his, his is a name that we will talk about again in the future. Again, Ken Anakin, there's a, a quote for him about Walt specifically had the picture designed in such a way to use the maximum number of painted mats. In fact, we used 62 in all, and it allowed us to give the picture a much broader suite visually than it would have without. I got very taken up with this technique and continue to use it on later pictures, but I almost had to train new artists myself and to pass on that 
pass on to them the sort of tricks that I thought Peter Ellenshaw relied on. But Peter just knew how to modify reality to make it look even realer than real. And so I really like the fact that Ellenshaw gets this lifetime contract and Anakin's like, man, I really like the way that looks. Nobody else knows how to do it. I can't do it myself, but I, I'm like trying to train people up on how to do this technique. And I just think it's really cool that, you know, even with the struggles about Walt having so much control over things and making so many decisions, that there were things that he took forward with him, you know, when he was not working with Disney any longer. That kind of quote really vibes to me with, you know, that early Disney era where somebody would do something cool and Walt would just be like, Okay, everybody's got to learn that now. Uh, we need to retrain everybody to just know how to do the best of the best because these are just cool things. And of course, we see less of that as Walt's trying to, you know, keep the budget down. It's a very kind of similar mentality that Anakin took of like, oh man, Disney did something right here. And, you know, he had talked about that. I work with Walt because he gives me good people. Mm-hmm. Know, to have something like that where he's just like, okay, you know, I, I can have the best actors, I can have the best script, but I mean, an, an image like that is something I can't just make up. I can't shoot a new camera angle to do something, you know, that impressive. I think the fact that there was a lifetime contract basically put into here. And there's some discussion about what that actually means. It seems to have been a fairly informal thing. More of a alt loved the guy rather than a like they had it down in the books kind of thing. Uh, although one never knows. Um, is is really interesting because Walt picked favorites and then would get mad at them and would want them gone. People could really kind of rise high and fall just as far in Walt's eyes the fact that this was so impressive that both Anakin and Walt were basically like I want you or your technique forever is is really kind of impressive especially because we see at this time period that there were even more problems going on with the production we start to have these kind of things aren't working we need to you know make sure we have the right kind of people but you're perfect you get life. You, I, all the money, all the accolades. Everybody else, we we kind of hate. I say that because there was a strike, or it was called a go slow strike uh, at the studio, which was not appreciated very much by Walt because, of course, he never liked strikes or rules or people telling him what to do. From the research I've been able to do. Some of that had to do with basically, you know, labor laws in a similar manner to what we're seeing right now with things like Twitter or X. Basically, Walt's like, well, this is what I say goes. And them going, hey, uh, we're in another country and that doesn't fly here. I think we, we see a little bit of that going on here. So Richard Todd, who we see playing Charles Branson, he was on a horse doing his own thing. We actually saw that in kind of the production for this, they had uh, six months of practice for dancing, horseback riding, fencing, but they are dangerous things. And uh, while they were filming the trailer and trying to get everything put together, Richard Todd was thrown from a horse. 
there, there's two things I need to say about that. First one is, if you've never been on a horse, they're bigger than you think they are. <laughs> Everybody just kind of sees horses in movies and they're like, oh yeah, they're like human-sized. Horses are big. Just being on a horse can be a painful experience, but being bucked from one, you can really go flying. It can be very similar to being like flung through the windshield of your car onto the pavement. So he actually, he he had a difficult time. Uh, he ended up being in bed for three weeks. And then when he got back to production, basically Britain said, okay, let's uh, let's have regulations. Let's control things. And uh, that that was never something that Walt would want to hear, that he had to change his plans for, you know, other people's needs, wants, or guidelines. Yeah. And so, again, you know, they're in England because of the whole arrangement about any money made in England during the war had to be spent there. And so we're continuing these British productions. And that comes with all of these other difficulties that, you know, Walt is just not not used to, you know. And of course, there's a lot of British actors in this movie as well. The leads all ended up in several Disney films, uh, some within some major roles. And, you know, these are names that are going to come up for us a few times. And so this is sort of like not quite a company of players, but sort of their go-to, you know, at least some of their go-to British actors that they would bring back a few times. So as I mentioned earlier, Glynis Johns played Mary Tudor. She is currently the oldest living Academy Award nominee and the oldest living Disney legend. She had previously worked with Richard Todd and was admired by Kent Anakin. She would go on to be in further Disney productions uh, like Rob Roy, The Highland Rogue, uh, where she plays Helen Mary McGregor, uh, which we'll talk about in three weeks, four weeks, soon. Um, three weeks. After, after Halloween. Yeah, again, as I mentioned before, she was in Mary Poppins as Mrs. Banks, although originally she thought she was uh, going to be cast in the title role. You know, She was also in some other uh, Disney-produced movies like The Ref in 1994 and While You Were Sleeping in 1995. She was named a Disney legend in 1998. And again, her voice is just like iconic in my head. Like it's so distinct that like I recognize her voice even before I recognize her face. It's kind of funny. So from what I had been reading, she basically had signed on with Disney for Mary Poppins. And then more or less, as they were about to start filming, found out that she wasn't Mary Poppins. Which is baffling to me, thinking about like how was that not in your contract? It was it was very similar to some of the things we've seen with the animators, where she kind of storms up to Walt and is like, "How dare you? Do you know who I am? I'm amazing!" And he's like, "No, you are." She's like, "I just how could you? Wait a minute, you agreed with me?" And and so apparently the the song that she gets to sing and and the suffragette kind of side of things was basically put in as a way to appease her. <laughs> for not being Mary Poppins, which is very similar to some of the stuff we saw with like Pinocchio, the idea that Jiminy Cricket was created because the animator had lost a scene in Snow White and things like that as kind of these like, yeah, I know you're not getting what you want, but I'll I'll give you something good. And the good thing always ends up being as or even more iconic than the thing they thought they wanted. I think she's great in this. Again, like I think she's really funny. She definitely captures the idea of Mary Tudor being a 
a very spirited person. Like I think she just brings a lot of like energy and fun to to the role. We also have James Robertson Justice as King Henry VIII. You may remember him as Little John in Robin Hood, and he is also going to be in Rob Roy, the Highland Rogue, John Campbell, Duke of Argyle. He was also considered for the role of Mr. Dawes Jr. in Mary Poppins and went on to be known for his role in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is actually a movie I've never I've never seen. Um, really? Yeah. I actually have. It's been a while, but it was kind of an interesting thing to find in the research because he is most known for that. I've had a few shows like that where they'll put in a bunch of well-known actors and I'm like, wait a minute, why are Percy Jackson and Hermione Granger just like chilling at a high school in the perks of being a wildflower just because they're so like in other roles? That's one of those weird, just weird gaps that for some reason I've never seen that movie. My dad used to sing one of the songs all the time. But yeah, so I did not recognize him, unfortunately. Richard Todd is Charles Branson. He was previously Robin Hood in Robin Hood that we talked about. He is also the lead in Rob Roy, the Highland Rogue. Spoiler alert. He was also named a Disney legend in 2002, which I say good for him because even though nobody talks about these movies that he's in, I do think, I feel like they are impactful in shaping things that we'll see going forward in the future. I don't find him super memorable as an actor. Like, I don't think he's bad, but he is kind of like, like a Sam Worthington, just kind of like generic white guy type actor. <laughs> yeah, I, I could see him being like one of the Chris's in the modern era. Yeah. My thing is, I look, I understand that as an actor, you want to have multiple roles. I don't, I don't begrudge any actor that at all. And Richard Todd got, you know, leading roles in three major movies. He did plenty of stuff outside of Disney. But I thought he was so perfect as Robin. I almost think it would have been better for him to not be in these other two movies. Because in this movie, he's just a guy. Whereas in Robin Hood, I felt like he was the guy. Mm, yeah. And I think that because he did three movies that were all British, that were all kind of adventure Instead of being Robin Hood, he is that guy who's in Disney British movies, which is a little less less of a successful uh, title, I guess. Yeah, I'm now just very curious to watch Rob Roy and just mm -hmm. see how it goes. Like maybe that's the one that will like really click for me. But I, I do like him uh, as Robin Hood, and I like him here. Like I said, he just doesn't like. Of all of the actors we're talking about, he's like the the fourth guy, the fourth person I think of mm -hmm. when I think back on on watching this movie. Uh, we also have uh, Michael Goff as the Duke of Buckingham. He goes on to play the Duke of Montrose in Rob Roy. He was the voice of the Dodo in the live action Alice in Wonderland. He has worked with Tim Burton very, very often, which mm -hmm. is how I primarily know him uh, because he's Alfred in the 89... Batman movie mm. and Batman Returns and the and Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. So in in like the nineties, eighty nine through ninety seven, I think run of Batman movies, he's Alfred, and that is like my primary association with him. Like even when I hear his voice in this or in, uh, I think it's Conga that he's in <clears throat> the giant gorilla movie. You know, I, again, like he's someone that I have a very strong familiarity with 
growing up. Like, his is, like, a face I'm used to seeing. Just because of the Batman movies I got, you know, into, I definitely see Michael Caine more as the iconic Alfred. I didn't have much experience with him, but one point that people might have a lot of kind of familiarity with him soon. This is just kind of an interesting point. So the Doctor Who 60th anniversary episode, there's three of them, but it's kind of one arc, is going to be coming out in November of this year. And it has been all but confirmed at this point that one of the main villains, at least, is going to be the Celestial Toymaker, played by Neil Patrick Harris, which I am just very interested to see. But the Celestial Toymaker had only really come up one time before, and that was in Classic Who when the Celestial Toymaker was played by Michael Goff. So I think that when we see the 60th anniversary, people will probably want to see kind of what this character had been before. And that could be an interesting place where he gets some random kind of attention years after the fact for this kind of one role that hadn't been super, super influential until much more recently. It, it's such a weird coincidence that like we're talking about at least two of his movies in the, in the lead up to that. I have to figure out if I'm going to watch those specials or not. Yeah, it's been, I watched, I think I watched all the way through Capaldi and like the first like three or four episodes of, what is her name? Eddie Whitaker. Yes. I, I knew it was Jody, and I could not remember what her last name was. And and none of it was bad, per se. Oh, it you gets know, there. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I struggled to hold on through Capaldi, and if, if it wasn't him in that lead role, just because I really like watching him act, I wouldn't have made it all the way through. And and I don't think Jodie Whittaker is a bad doctor, but I watched, like, this first couple episodes, and I was like, I'm just, I'm just not feeling it. And so now it's been five years or more since i've really like watched any doctor who because i haven't gone back to older stuff either so i've watched all of it um there's definitely some good ones in jodie whittaker's era i think it's much more a problem of the writing than a problem of the actress it, there's like a a serious campy line that doctor who has always kind of been on both sides of and i think it definitely lost the balance a lot in the recent years. Uh, my favorite thing is that a legitimate scene in one of the last episodes of Doctor Who was a master pretending to be Rasputin, dancing to Rasputin, Russia's greatest love machine, which is such a like thing you would see on TikTok or like an edited meme, not a thing that Doctor Who should be doing. We did warn you guys that this would be a very nerdy episode. <laughs> I, I do recommend that you watch the 60th anniversary, if only because if you liked it in seasons one through four, there's a lot coming back from there. That's that's the thing that has me most interested, because like I the first time I ever saw Doctor Who, I had seen one of the two parters with Eccleston and then immediately the first Angels episode. Uh, with Tenet, because I was being shown by a family that had grown up with classic Who and were really into, you know, do Who as well. And so, like, like I was, like, at their house, they're like, you haven't seen any Doctor Who? Okay, we need to fix that immediately. Like, I got, like, a crash course 
uh, in it. And so like Tenet is is my doctor. And you know, even once he left, like I was never a huge Matt Smith fan, but I love Amy and Rory. And so like that kind of got pulled me through in in this the when I got too tired of Matt Smith's quirks. <laughs> you know, and then like I said, I I really like Capaldi, but I also really don't like Stephen Moffat when he's show running. Like I like when he writes individual episodes, but when mm. he show runs, it goes it, it gets into a like a weird tone that I don't like. And I do think it needed to be campier, but I could see how they may have overcorrected a little bit. But but yeah, I you know, I I might check them out. We'll see. Um Stephen Moffat, in in my opinion, and this is something that is very accurate with Disney too, to stay vaguely on topic. I think Stephen Moffat has like 20 amazing ideas. He just keeps trying them until he gets them to work. And so sometimes Stephen Moffat has absolutely amazing episodes, but it's only because he's tried the same idea three times before and it didn't work. And he finally made it work. So, like, Peter Capaldi's final episodes, not including the Christmas episode, I think are some of Stephen Moffat's best work, but they're also just repeating everything he did the past three years. Right. That being said, I have been re-watching a lot of Doctor Who lately in preparation, and I have been re-watching Tennant's era and not liking him. Oh, boy. Because I go back and I'm like, it's just a jerk to everybody for no reason. Like, what was charming when I watched it the first time? Now I'm just like, Peter Capaldi's doctor gets annoyed when, like, you do something stupid and threaten the universe. Matt Smith's doctor gets angry when, like, you threaten his family. David Tennant's doctor just gets mean because you happen to be human. The species he claims to love above all others. He's not mad, he's just disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, yeah, I, I, uh... I'm just a sucker for David Tennant. Like anything I've ever seen him in, I'm just like he. For some reason, I just find him incredibly captivating and very charming. So uh, I may be immune to his him being mean. Well, good news for you. Officially, Good Omen season three is in production ish. Uh, now that the writing strike is over, Neil Gaiman is working on it, and it has been all but greenlit. So. I'll get to see some lovely new David Tennant at some point in the future. But yeah, see, this is what happens. This one's for the fans, because this is what happens when we get an episode where there isn't a ton of stuff. Like, we don't have, you know, 18 pages of notes, (laughs) as we have for some of these movies. Instead of getting to hear about Disney history, you get to hear our thoughts on literally anything but Disney for at least an hour out of the podcast, Uh, which I think is... It lead into how did people react to this movie in its contemporary time? So this one was distributed by RKO because of the World War II money that had to be spent in the UK. It was released on July 23rd, 1953. It was also presented with a true life, one of Disney's true life documentaries called Prowlers of the Everglades, which was apparently more successful than the actual feature. I did actually watch that because uh, that is also on Disney Plus. It's a half an hour. And so I had a little bit of time uh, before recording and I was like, let's let's check this out. And you know what? It's pretty solid. It's a pretty good documentary of of gators in the Everglades. 
it shows you like them being little baby gators and then growing up and eating fish and birds and things and you know there's a bull gator maiden call and like there's you know i guess like good footage of stuff in the everglades which the documentary also claims to be a land that has never changed and will never change which is definitely not the case (laughs) and it's it's there's like a nice uh, like a really cool nicely animated intro to the whole thing like i can see why that series was popular so that's that's maybe a little bit of glimpse into what we'll be talking about next week when we get the first feature length true life adventure documentary when i was looking up stuff i did come across a very fun japanese poster for the sword and the rose which has some really great artwork and also an alligator on it and at first i was confused but then i saw the note about that it, it was they were released together and then it made a lot more sense but you know not being able to read japanese i was like why is there an alligator on the poster for this movie set in medieval england <laughs> uh, and now i know and i i feel better adding a little bit to that and i believe a spoiler for our next episode i've already been doing some of the research on the living desert and if i'm remembering correctly that movie made more money in japan than gone with the wind it was like the biggest movie in japan the first full-length true life adventures so it seems like they were really down for the nature documentaries at this point so i'm i'm kind of wondering almost like when people would go to the theater to see a mickey mouse short instead of the movie like did the people in japan go to see the alligators instead of to see this like british monarchy play totally plausible like i said the documentary is good and like you think about maybe for us like i've you know i've been to florida like i know what florida looks like so maybe i'm like okay like this this documentary is fine but like if i saw a they do one of these true life adventures that is footage of japanese animals maybe like i might actually be more excited because they're things that are less familiar so there could be that sort of exotic america sort of angle (laughs) to it um, you know, we're, we're like, oh, there's, you know, maybe there hadn't been a lot of footage of the Everglades shown in Japan before. Like, that's very possible. I think that it's it's kind of interesting to see that as much as we'll talk about how important these stories were and various cultural products, we are seeing that there are plenty of people that just want to learn about the world as it is and and the different sides of it. Unfortunately... That wasn't apparently much of a draw in the U.S. or the U.K. Uh, So while Japan may have put a good bit of money into seeing what seems to me a bit from the poster as, you know, alligators and crocodiles eating uh, British monarchs, which would be a hilarious movie, it it was a bit less successful in its home markets. So the movie had a budget of two million and only made two and a half million. That is not good. Um, you know, this was considered a box office failure and really one of the first failures of this kind of post post war era where they were starting to get back into the groove of things. Uh, and it started to make Walt really question whether this formula that it really worked with Treasure Island and Robin Hood was actually going to work. The film didn't do terribly well in the US and UK, and it was kind of seen as boring from the average viewer and wildly inaccurate by the historians. 
which brings kind of this point of, you know, what changed? Uh, so Walt maybe thought, okay, these British stories are working. Why didn't this one work? But the book play and silent film versions were all huge successes. So by all rights, the combination of the cast and crew of these previous Disney British films and this extremely popular story should have been a success, and it just wasn't. Uh, and I think that kind of comes back to this kind of hug of war of its good parts and its bad parts that we've been doing this whole episode. And again, this could be totally skewed from where we are sitting in time in, in 2023. But I think of like Treasure Island, Robin Hood, and then when Knighthood, when Knighthood was in flower, and I'm like, one of these things is not like the, the others. <laughs> And, you know, unless I'm wildly underestimating how popular this book was in the 1950s, like, you're comparing this story to two of the most popular, like, kids adventure stories that have ever been written in the English language. Mm -hmm. And the novel was published in 1898. You know, we talked about there was a stage version, there's a 1908 version, a 1922 version, and then a 1953 version. And it's almost like... Maybe there was a reason that nobody, there was 30 years between those two that nobody in all of the movies that Hollywood had made in this time, like nobody had gone and thought to, to readapt this. And it doesn't sound like there was a huge issue with the rights or anything. And so like, and it ha also hasn't been adapted since as far as I can tell. And so like, maybe this is just one of those stories that has sort that like fell out of favor and Walt being behind the times as he sort of often was, just didn't realize it. From the research that I did, there's a few interpretations of similar things, not specifically adaptations of this book, but adaptations of this time period. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that currently one of the biggest kind of Tudor historical fiction writers is Philippa Gregory. And she had, I believe, Stars miniseries, The White Queen, The White Princess, and then The Spanish Princess, which are focused on the War of the Roses. And so we kind of see people are interested in that again now with those kinds of things and with the Tudors, which actually did show this arc, but called her Princess Margaret instead of Mary, who was another of Henry's sisters, but they just kind of glommed them together. So I think there is interest in it, but this book's version in particular just didn't seem to be working in the post-war period. Yeah, and, and so I think that could very well... Yeah, and again, I will also say, I don't think it's as good as those other two movies, but I think, you know, it's not... In my mind, it's not so dramatically worse that people were like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't want to bother to see it. Like, I think... You could sell a version of of this movie, but again, I think maybe just it's just not as familiar, and or maybe it's just not as kid friendly. Like both Robin Hood is a a youngish character; he's not a kid like Jim Hawkins in Treasure Island. But like this is a movie about adults, no Mary's actual age at the time of the events, but all of the like these characters all presented as adults, you know, sort of making adult decisions. She was actually eighteen, which. Historically speaking, she was pretty old. I mean, she mm -hmm. had passed the time that she could have been married off accurately. Uh, she was she was still very young. It's definitely more of like a 
a young adult, new adult kind of thing rather than a kid's story. Right. And and I think even with Robin Hood, like we talked about, to me at least, he comes off as very teen in the beginning of that movie. Mm-hmm. You know, even though, again, it's the same actor and it, it's just the way that the character is presented because like he's with his dad and like the way like him and Mary and like they still feel like they're in that sort of new adulthood, like, you know, late teens at like you know 17 16 17 18 whereas like these characters feel closer to like them being in their 20s by sort of modern standards mm-hmm. and so i think it's it's you know despite sword being in the name and there being a few sword fights there is more dancing than there are sword fights in this movie and that's not a complaint for me but again i think trying to think about like the the you know who disney is sort of making these movies for like you know the, to me these are very boy-coded, for lack of a better term. And we talked about this a little bit with Peter Pan, that you know, there's kind of this early Disney, at least in the modern perception, there's a lot of girl stories. And and we see the, the princesses are very girl-coded. Other than Cinderella, this era is very boy-coded. And so, you know, Peter Pan is a story all about motherhood, yet Wendy is kind of pushed off to the side. This felt like the story was supposed to be about Mary, but they didn't know how to write it by a female perspective. Mm-hmm. So they wrote a woman as written by men, which is not interesting to men or women. And I, I think that that kind of became a problem where it doesn't feel boycotted like the other movies of the time. Because like we said, it's romance, it's dancing. It's, it's not necessarily an effective girl-coded... Like, this is not a chick flick. This is not, you know, the movie that girls drag their boyfriends to either. And so I think instead of being in every man movie, it kind of becomes a no man's movie because it can't figure out who its audience is supposed to be. Maybe it's a dad movie. It might be a dad movie. That's that's totally possible. <laughs> if so, the dads were not uh, not fighting not for up. it. Our legacy section here is, I think, the smallest legacy section we've ever had. So according to D23, it aired on television in 1956, as when Knighthood was in flower, interestingly enough. And then it was released on video in 1985 and 1993. That's it. Leonard Malton claimed it was one of his favorites when he kind of provided an introduction to it in 2018. And that's it. (laughs) That's the (laughs) legacy of this movie. I couldn't find anything about it literally looking on Disney's own website. And that tells you how little legacy it really has within and beyond Disney. Yeah. And again, I think it being an adaptation of a book that's not particularly well known at this point, because I'd never heard of the, like I hadn't heard of this movie and I hadn't even heard of the book the movie was based on prior to doing the research for this podcast. And, and, you know, I think, I think that just says a lot. Like, I don't think it's, ignored so much as just forgotten one thing i did want to ask you about is i kept going back and forth on and again this may also have something to do with the my take on this movie as being a little bit lighter and more comedic than i think the way that it landed for you but i couldn't tell if they were just like 
being sexist or if it was supposed to be like old timey sexism. <laughs> like, I think it was both. like, because it was so over the top where I was like, okay, like they're really throwing on that like silly woman angle to all the all of these things that are happening but it kind of feels like they're in on the joke but but like it's also really convincing (laughs) i think for me it kind of goes back to movie wants me to believe that mary is very smart doesn't ever show me mary being very smart uh, I think it was both. I think they were trying to do what they did in Robin Hood, where like they acknowledge the sexism of the time. It's kind of, you know, tongue in cheek. And she's more of a hero for being able to navigate that world. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, like, I think they're trying to go for the same thing, but they just didn't know how to actually show Mary doing that. And so the best they could do was having, like, Mary occasionally showing up Henry. The only moment that I felt was really clearly joking was Henry, like, leaving the room and being like, and don't forget to beat her three times a day. Like, that moment definitely was like, okay, we're joking about what's going on. But I think that it was a lot more of, like... (sighs) So I think that, like, one of the things we talk about, especially in, like, book publishing is, like, can you or should you, you can do whatever you want. Should you, you know, write a black character if you aren't black? Should you write a gay character if you aren't gay? And the the kind of consensus is, yes, you absolutely can write that character, but you shouldn't, like, write a book about experiencing racism if you've never experienced racism. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think for this movie, it's kind of a similar vein where they were really trying to write a story about a woman being controlled by the men around her seeking agency, but it was written exclusively by men who have no idea what that is like. And that's kind of my perspective on where the sexism lies. I think they were really trying to be progressive with it, but because they didn't actually know what it was like to be a woman whose life is controlled by other people. They actually made it more sexist in the process. Again, not having really any concrete proof of this. I just, I'm going to, I'm going to blame Walt for this one. Like it just, I can just like picture him on set and you know, they're shooting the movie and like Walt seems like the, in this role, the most annoying kind of person who like doesn't have doesn't have anything to offer or to add, but is only like, oh, you know what? You should really, you should really do that a little bit differently. <laughs> and I can just imagine him, you know, sort of, and again, to your point, not doing it consciously, but him trying to like add gags to the movie and just like give feedback here and there and, and, you know, kind of putting his fingerprints all over it. I can I can sort of see how it would morph even even closer to that where like you know it, it's I think we can say that it's um we can give the benefit of the doubt in terms of the intention behind what they were trying to do but they couldn't even understand how they weren't doing it correctly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Another thing that we've been trying to do throughout this podcast is call out some of the women who have been doing really great work with Disney, because that's not something that historically has been done outside of, you know, specific books focusing on that task. And in the animation world, 
I think we're starting to get to a point where we have at least one really, really important woman putting her opinion into things. But they didn't have that in the British side. Between Treasure Island literally not having female characters mm-hmm. and just in general the production team being all men, like it it comes across as false because literally no women have put any of their perspectives into the film. And that's not necessarily a they were trying to cause problems as much as just you can't authentically represent someone's experiences when you have never experienced anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And again, I'm will often give people the benefit of the, of the doubt at least, but I think you can I think you I think you can usually tell and parse what is intentional sexism versus unintentional sexism, etc. I think you're right. I think there's definitely moments in the movie where it's so over the top that you're like, okay, like clearly we're this is intended as a joke of how mm-hmm. ridiculous it is. But yeah, I think on a deeper story level, that's where the actual problems come in. Yeah, I think that it's just one of those spots that becomes kind of hard to hard to detangle, especially with so little behind the scenes. I had a kind of similar question for you. So you said that you've been getting into romance more. Mm-hmm. And so something that I've always found interesting with romance, especially historically speaking, is looking at what they do with the other man or the other woman. So like in the 90s, we get a lot of like the other the other man is always cheating. The other woman is is probably talking about how ugly he is behind her back and is talking about how she just wants his money. Like they they deeply vilify the woman that mm-hmm. the man is currently dating or the man that the woman is currently dating to justify these two characters getting together. Because technically in most romance movies, the main couple is cheating. It's okay. The other person's a terrible person. And it was interesting to see that, not with Buckingham, who was, you know, clearly kind of a bad guy, but with the King of France. Because he didn't do anything wrong. Like, I I get that he is a creepy old man and she is 18 and doesn't want to be married to him. I completely acknowledge at least the modern sensibility that that is wrong. But, like, realistically, he is a monarch. He married a royal. This is very normal. The money was paid. The The women were exchanged. I'm not saying it's good, but like the standard of the time happened and he is expecting her to sleep with him, which is her job. Like, again, I'm not saying I like it, but he it's not like he's beating her. It's not like he's right. twisting his mustache and torturing her lover. He's just like, hi, you're beautiful and I like you. Do you think we could be a married couple? And she's like, nah, I think I'm going to get you really drunk and try and make you fall off your horse so that you die already. And it was interesting because I feel like they didn't villainize him as the other man. He just was an obstacle, which actually made me feel bad for him. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how that change from the historical record cast Mary in a much worse light, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Like... 
I don't think the movie is saying that she out and out murdered him. But like she had a favorable outcome. <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those like borderline cases where it's like she it's like it's like a manslaughter charge. It's not like a <laughs> like she didn't poison the wine or push him out a window or something. You know, she didn't like actively like pull the trigger for lack of a better a better term. But she was certainly like increasing his chance of risk so like and in the historical version like it was just more of a byproduct of he just couldn't keep going anymore which i think casts it again and just just a much different light for for mary and like what we think of her as a as a person i think that you know i think there's kind of two things happening i think that number one we didn't need Buckingham and the King of France. If they had just kind of blended them, not that there's a great way to do that. Or like, and they can't do this in a Disney movie. I fully acknowledge that. And they can't do this in a 1950s movie. But if they had gone the House of the Dragon way and shown like him betting her and how distinctly uncomfortable and unwanted that is, and it's empowering for her to be like subtly trying to kill him. Right. I I think back to uh the CW Mary Queen of Scots show Rain. There's a great line at one point where the mom says, "I can't I can't stop you from getting married, but I can certainly make you a widow." And that's such a like great thread through historical like perspectives of women taking the agency back. I'm not saying that like women should just always kill their husbands, but like it is a, a trope throughout real life and historical narratives. Mm-hmm. Because he didn't do anything, I feel bad about it. Because literally from the first moment, like what we see is the French ambassador is like, based on her picture, you know, he he thinks it'll be a love match. And you know, we think this is going to be great. And he sees her and he's like, oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, if you're not comfortable with the party, we can go back. Yes, he wants to have sex with her. I'm not denying that that is a thing. But she just married him. That's not an unreasonable expectation. <laughs> and she just is is just casually trying to kill him through overexertion. And from from the very get-go, her perspective is like, I just have to wait it out until he dies and then I can get what I want. And that that was just such an interesting thing to me, given that romance movies, and especially rom-coms, have to eliminate the other woman or the other man in some way. That instead of making him a bad guy that we can root for her to take out, or instead of giving them a little bit of peace and then just having, you know, he dies naturally, whatever. They're just like, yeah, she she wants him dead. And he he just exists. And he's kind of pitiful. And I don't know. I, I felt like it, it could have been an interesting place to see some of those romance genre tropes put to use. Yeah, because I guess they just settle on, like, good old-fashioned, like, older people are gross. And like that's that's reason enough for him to die is that he is old and looks feeble and she is you know young and 
very energetic and that that's that's reason not that old, old people are gross and she should be able to marry for love feels feels very much like a you know sort of a, that modern romance overlaid on the actual historical record which again makes sense for when the book was written i don't necessarily have a problem with it because again whether we're talking modern or historical it's not like this was a good situation she was forced into it mm-hmm. he's more than you know her father's age this is a gross bad situation but they just played it as like haha stupid old man and that just didn't seem necessary <laughs> But yeah, like I said, overall, I I had a fun time with this movie. Again, it's not one that I'm going to like go back to or be like, oh my god, guys, I just discovered this movie, you know, on, on the podcast we're doing. It's amazing. Like, no one's seen it. It's great. Now, that would be far overselling how much I actually enjoyed this movie. I had a pleasant time watching it. But but yeah, I don't really have any other another, uh, thoughts that I think we need to, we need to cover. So um, I'm good if you're good, Megan. Yeah, I mean, just to sum up my thoughts i didn't really enjoy watching it i've had more fun talking about it i think just as i watched it i kept thinking of other things that had done this concept better and i think that's the general kind of vibe of it and that's going to be something that gets talked about you know when we watched robin hood i thought robin hood was really good but somebody who's watched a bunch of robin hood movies might not mm-hmm I will say, if anybody, you know, feels the need to watch this movie, it gets really bored, uh, especially in the last half of it. If you just take it to 1.25 speed, the sword fights are really funny because they're so hilariously bad to begin with that when they're yeah. like high speed, it's that much funnier. So if you find yourself falling more on my side of the spectrum than Ryan's on whether this is an enjoyable movie, uh, and if you feel the need to watch along with us, the changing of speed certainly is an effective way to make it a more fun movie. Yeah, I, I will say, I fully acknowledge that the dancing in this movie is much better done than the sword fighting in this movie, and that if you know if we hadn't gotten some good sword fighting in Robin Hood, I would be disappointed. To touch on the dancing for one second, they did a decent job with, like, these are historical dances. I don't know that they're the dances from this time period, but they are historical dances. I do find it kind of hilarious that they're like, oh my god, it's this new dance. It's scandalous, but it's amazing. It's one step. Yeah. And like, rock back, rock forward, swing in the air. And then they just kept doing that for like two minutes. That's not how dances work there would be other steps and movements but i just found it hilarious that they were all so excited by this one dance move that they just keep twirling like that for minutes because i i i have done a lot of dances and being you know in a lift especially at a time when you could not be touched by other people is going to be thrilling and sometimes it does feel like you're flying it is kind of funny to just like sit and watch and just be like it's not even a dance. That's that's a dance step. It's yeah. one move. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was thinking it as a here's a here's a scandalous dance step that we that someone just invented somehow and now it, it's sweeping the country by storm. <laughs> Throw it in amongst their normal dances or have there be a full version that they, you know, all start picking up. No, 
they're just gonna keep like lifting and spinning lifting and spinning and the whole time i'm watching it i'm like wow these people are really sexually repressed i mean yes at least at least the women in the time which i think is is part of what's being discussed here the men the men could sleep with whomever they wanted and it's i think they're trying to tease Anne Boleyn in the dance scene when Henry kind of locks eyes with someone although at that moment it probably should have been Mary Boleyn i i do think that they played with that a little bit but like the idea of like uh Brandon picking her up and doing the dance move and she's just like horrified and then is like Am I a prude for like not let, <laughs> yeah. being surprised that like he didn't warn me, he just touched me? There's definitely that that sexual repression with the women on on high display. And again, all that just struck me as funny while I was watching it. And so, you know, again, I, I, these are all reasons I enjoyed this movie. But again, I I completely acknowledging it not working for for other people, including you. Which would be hilarious if we both rewatch it and end up switching opinions on it. I don't know. Uh, my my perspective, as I told Ryan before, is I am somebody who studied ancient and medieval history with a focus on Tudor era England, who has studied and performed historical dances who loves Shakespearean-style drama and romance. And so I feel like I am the target audience for the story. I guess you were the target audience for the Disney execution of that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that that yeah. may be where, where it all comes down. Yeah, you might just be a little bit too close to the, like, not the source material, because you haven't read the book, but the historical basis for the source material. Because I, I will admit, there are movies I cannot watch because they are so bad. And my friends and I will frequently put on a historical fiction movie just to mock the inaccuracies. It's a very fun thing for us to do. So trying to to take this seriously, I think, may have been my downfall. You know, I think we're going to be able to continue to play with some of that coming up. Next time on Dream With Mind and Heart, we're going to be heading off to our first true life adventure as we journey into the living desert. And one of the things that I know we'll talk about then is this clash of genre again. Because it's a documentary. They're going to have like... I think they have birds or or reptiles that start dancing because they edit it like they would edit a comic or a cartoon instead of like they would a documentary. Yeah, I'm very curious to see how we both react to that. Our listeners can find out in just a week. And we'll we'll find out as we go through this one. It's going to be fun to see how this kind of fact fiction animation logic balance is managed by Disney in these upcoming films. So definitely check that out. Don't forget that we had a code word in this episode. You can email us that code word or any other thoughts and questions you may have at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, dreammindheart. I made sure that our DMs are open if you would like to send us questions, comments, code words, and then on our Instagram at dreamwithmindandheart. 
As always, thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our lovely editor, Tessa Suela. <laughs>